This is Insight with Roz, a radio broadcast brought to you on podcast by I'mJustSaying.com, independent of the good opinion of others. Hey, I'm Roz. Thanks for joining me on Insight, where we look at life in 3D and tackle the tough topics, all through the prism of hood feminism. My special guest is Naomi, aka the blogger Tracing Trauma. And that's exactly what we are going to be discussing today. How the trauma of childhood sexual abuse, CSA, affects how it impacts on daily life. It's an experience that leaves its mark, biologically, emotionally and mentally. And it also wounds the spirit. So we look at the powerful impulses that govern our responses to overwhelming life events. Sadly, victim survivors frequently pass on their stress to their partners and their children. Yet Naomi, a victim survivor of CSA, offers a hopeful vision, one of triumph over trauma. Easily said than done, I'm sure. Listen as we talk and explore the horror that is all too prevalent in today's society. Naomi, thank you for being my very special guest. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. pleasure. You are going to be sharing with us your story, which is one very much of abuse and trauma, various stages and various levels. So thank you so much for doing that and shining a light on one of the horrors that is still prevalent in our society. You are ready and you're comfortable. Yes. Let's do this. If you were to start off by telling people who you are, where would you begin to answer that question? Oh, <laughs> that's complicated because I, I've been many people. I started out as a victim of child abuse and that framed how I viewed myself and the world. I also had a God-given talent of singing ability since a very young age of about four And that stood out and was something that was able to get me through my teenage years and my tumultuous 20s. And I used alcohol during that time and was a different personality, a rock and roll chick that didn't care about anything but didn't feel those bad feelings. And now I'm a different incarnation of of a healing person, a survivor. I hear your identification as a survivor. Mm -hmm. When did you recognize that you had been sexually abused? Um, As far as I can remember, as far back, I can remember what happened to me. And I tried to tell people about it, but it was minimized and even gaslighted. For listeners who may have heard, but not be familiar with the term gaslighting or gaslit, using your own words, how would you explain it to them, please? Yes, I know there was a movie called Gas Gaslight, and that's where the term initially came from. But to me, what it means is, you know that something happened, but the person that saw it and witnessed it is now telling you it did not happen. And they're doing that for a motivation. And that motivation is to control you because they want to keep you off balance. They want to be able to manipulate you. And as a child, that was how I lived. 
And it's dangerous for me as an adult because I can be manipulated easily if I allow myself to be and I'm not vigilant. So as a result, I don't I didn't trust myself very much or my own opinions, you know. Did you recognize as a child that you were sexually abused? Yes, I, I knew that it wasn't right. I tried to get help. I wasn't listened to. So I kind of moved on and grew up and just kind of put it in the back of my mind and just called myself a survivor, but didn't seek any treatment. How old were you when you recognized what was happening to you was abuse? I knew it was abuse uh, right away because I knew that I wasn't supposed to be uh, pulling my bloom my bloomers down and having a a man be on top of me. <laughs> so at the age of shall we say five, you knew what the, what was, was happening to you was wrong or yes. older? No, I, well, I was five when it happened, and I did know it was wrong then. So was this somebody who was a friend of the family or family? It was a uh, my mother and father divorced. See, I've had to go back and trace this story because I'm an amateur genealogist. I trace my family tree and that's where I got the name Tracing Trauma. That's my blog. And so that's where I found most of my information regarding my past. One of the things that happened was my mother put us at a babysitter's house and the babysitter's son had like a detached apartment behind the main house. And it was a place where there was a lot of children, uh, you know, chaos because many kids were being washed by this one family. And so the older son lived in an apartment back there. And that's where he got me on more than one occasion, because I do remember trying to run away from him. One time he said, oh, you know, meet me at the apartment. And I tried to go the opposite way and he circumvented and caught me. And I even tried to get some young kids, uh, some bigger kids than me to come and help me. But they weren't able to. Did you not ask adults for help? When I told adult figure, it just wasn't believed. Did you tell the parents? When I told, that's when we were no longer welcome at the babysitter's house anymore. And that's when I remember getting yelled at by my mother. So why was your mom yelling at you? Well, probably because her babysitter was (laughs) saying that she didn't want me there anymore. (laughs) I don't know what the excuse was. I just know, you know, I know how it is being a mother. And uh, if you have a babysitter, uh, that's something that you consider to be valuable. But if the if your child is being abused at the babysitters, <laughs> maybe not such a good uh, idea for them to keep going there. <laughs> Just a thought. <laughs> and then I told my father when I was 10 and he told me it didn't happen. I think people listen to little children sometimes and and don't take them seriously. But if a child is telling you that they're being abused, most likely they are. I mean, kids aren't just going to make up these stories. I'm not sure what I sounded like and what verbiage I used, but I distinctly remember at that time trying to get help. So what did your dad say to you? Where does his disbelief come from? So he said, oh, we went to the town and we talked to the people (laughs) because my father was a narcissist. He is a narcissist. He's still alive. And so that, I don't know if he just didn't want to bother with pursuing it. So I know you have brothers. Do you feel that perhaps your parents didn't take you seriously because you were a girl? 
yeah, you just hit, hit hit the nail on the head. I'm the oldest and I have three brothers. And from the time I was very small, it was pretty clear to me that I wasn't actually the oldest, <laughs> that my younger brother was considered the oldest in how he was treated and in the hierarchy of things. And like when I was 10, I was told to stay inside. I couldn't go out and play anymore. I had to wash the dishes and sweep the floor. And I was really mad because just the day before I was climbing the trees and throwing the ball with the boys and having a good time. So I didn't really like the fact that my gender was now going to separate me and make me less than. <laughs> with the benefit of hindsight. Right. <laughs> Can you understand why your mother didn't believe you? You know, I understand a lot more about my parents because I traced my family tree. Um, I didn't just look at the numbers. I talked to people. I interviewed people. I w w had access to medical records. So I understand my mother suffers from bipolar disorder. And so at many occasions, her emotional volatility, you know, put her off the road of sanity and she wasn't able to make good choices for herself or her children. So, I, I mean, I understand it that, you know, whatever her motivations were, were based on, you know, her lack of the tools to deal with life. And from your father's perspective, because in a way we girls, we expect our daddies to look after us. Well, my father is a very complicated person. He, it, and the funny thing is, is I'm 54 now and I just started understanding things weren't, I mean, I knew they weren't right, but I didn't know what a narcissist was. And then when I started going to EMDR therapy and I started getting involved in learning about psychiatry and psychology and everything to do with generational trauma, I started to see, you know, that my father, where he came from, the abuse that he endured. Uh, and, you know, he's a narcissist and he's a person that minimized the bad things that happened to me, took, gaslit me. To this day, I stopped talking to him in December 2019 because I wrote him a letter and asked him, why did you abandon me at a hospital in the middle of the night when I was eight? He said that didn't happen. I said, why? You know, I asked him several pointed questions about some things that he did to me as a child. In, and he just came back with narcissistic answers, N you know, nothing that gave me comfort whatsoever. The only solace I got from that letter was that I could see in black and white that he is not capable of loving me as a daughter deserves to be loved. And therefore I cannot be in that relationship anymore because I love myself more than that. And I deserve more than that. And I know a narcissist is not going to change and that I, I'm best removing myself from the situation so that I can be protected. And it, it's been a very calm year <laughs> without him in it. Sometimes our families can be the source of trauma and we are better off not trying to build a bridge, but actually wrapping a shield of protection around ourselves and stepping back. But what you've said that has taken my attention is something that I think I would consider magnanimous given what you have been through in terms of child sexual abuse, which I shall refer to as CSA. 
And that is the fact that you said, I understand my father has been abused himself. He's a narcissist. So mm. can you, if you're at liberty, so you're comfortable, would you tell us a little bit about the abuse that your father has sure. suffered? Uh, well, my father, I found out that he was one of the Booth babies in Boston. They had a place called the Evangeline Booth Unwed Mother Home. And the 19, late 1930s, the Salvation Army came up with this wonderful <laughs> idea that women that got pregnant out of wedlock were morally deficient. So therefore, well, they did it by themselves, Naomi. Yeah, they did it by no, themselves. No, the men themselves. were studs. <laughs> no, the men men, were studs. no, they had nothing to do with it. They were preyed right. on by these women. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. This, this just, is... They like apples, and the next thing you know, it's this yeah. whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. Don't get me started on all that. <laughs> But anyway, where was I? So the Booth baby. So he was right. a Booth baby. So, so the Booth babies. And the reason I know about this is I have the actual intake paperwork of my grandmother when she went in for care six weeks before her due date. Her parents had pushed her out and she had my father there, 1940, and her her own parents shunned her and would not give her any salt, you know, comfort. So she had to put the baby up for adoption. So my father was that baby. He was, I, I'm, it's not clear to me for six weeks. I know that she cared for my father and breastfed him. Then my father went somewhere. And I know by the things I've learned about the human mind, that the first three years of life are very important as far as bonding and learning how to have empathy for others. And I know that my father was supposed to be adopted by a couple, but in the end, they, it was adjudicated that the couple was too old. So just before my father's third birthday, he was taken away from that couple and given to his own grandfather, the person who had rejected his daughter's pregnancy to begin with. So this man... Albert Nathaniel Ladd was his name, was in the war of 1918 at 17 years old. And he came back and got married right away. And, and, and apparently there's a story about uh, that the bride was already pregnant and, and, you know, and gave birth to Albert. I mean, gave birth to uh, Gertrude, my father's mother. So anyway, it's this long line of, you know, this, abuse and poverty that was a big factor and the, the great depression was also involved and the the separation of families and so all of these factors you can see again and again in many of stories that you hear about child abuse you know so i i think the narcissism was what albert had he beat my dad abused my dad and then he died when my dad was 10 years old. So then my dad was left with my, who he thinks is his mother. It's not his mother. It's actually his grandmother, right? It sounds confusing. <laughs> my father didn't find out any of this stuff until he was 38 years old when he started trying to trace his roots and discovered that his mother was not his mother. And she came out with the truth. Yes, 
We adopted you. Your real mother is Gertrude. She gave you up at the Evangeline Booth unwed mother home because they viewed unwed mothers as morally deficient and that the parents that adopted these babies were doing the mother a favor. You know, that's what the initial idea was at that time. Why my dad was separated from his mother. It just so happened his adoption didn't go through and he had to end up going back to his grandfather and that ended up causing his mind warp, you know, his mind just, it, 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 I have to forgive him because I understand he's just not capable. And if the only person that benefits from that forgiveness is more than anyone is me. You seem to understand your father's trauma and you also have this element of forgiveness. Given those things, is there going to be a time when you see yourself in the future reconciling with your father? Or is it a case of you forgive him, you've moved on, and never the twain shall meet? <laughs> well, I gave him 15 years. Uh, my father put me in a foster home when I, well, the first time he abandoned me at a hospital in the middle of the night when I was eight years old. Where was your mother? Well, my parents ended up divorcing. Right. My mentally ill mother went on her own way across the country as a traveling singer. Uh, and, you know, that's another story. Uh, but my father, he got remarried. And my stepmother was also bipolar, I found out recently because I've had to become a detective and investigate my own life. I sent away for records, my school records. Did you know I, you don't know this? I'm telling you now. I went to 13 different schools. I did not know that until I sat down and went through everything. I, that's when I also realized that I was missing for 12 weeks. And that is when my dad abandoned me at the hospital, I ended up being put into temporary foster care for about it, from March 1975 until June 1975. I was in Lake Park, Florida, and I remember it. I have memories of it. And um, I was just so happy to see it in evidence. You know, this investigation that I'm doing it's to put everything in sequential order because when you are a kid that's gaslit time after time, you start not believing in yourself and, and you don't trust your own feelings. And, and that's really a, a terrible way to live. <laughs> and that is on top of the trauma you were already living with as a victim survivor of child sexual abuse. Now that you're able to look back on the trauma arising from the CSA, Mm -hmm. Will you share with listeners how the child sexual abuse impacts on regular life? Because we know that it physically affects, it changes the actual brain. Yeah. Besides the harm that you have mentioned, that one does not actually trust oneself, one's own judgment. That's a pretty subtle one that I've had to realize over time. And it's, you don't trust yourself, like, just remembering things, you know, you're like, oh, I remember la la la, da da da. And then you're like, oh, or, di or did I? Did I do that? I'm not sure. You know, it, it's just those little everyday things. But the way things have affected me when I was a smaller child, I acted out 
emotionally because I was triggered uh, with a lot of anger. I was a the only girl, so uh, a lot of fighting with punching and kicking and uh, pulling of hair, <laughs> whatever. I was a dirty fighter. <laughs> uh, but as I got a little bit older and I became a sexual being, uh, well, actually, you're a, a sexual being when you're uh, sexually assaulted pretty much right away without your consent. So your body acts sexually. So as a young child, I acted sexually inappropriate uh, and uh, chronically <clears throat> masturbated, <laughs> which is embarrassing. And I cried and cried and cried when I had to write about that in my blog. And I was real subtle about it. You know, I didn't come out and say that word. And I cried and cried. And I'm a grown woman. <laughs> I mean, I've been to a nudist colony. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm not a prude whatsoever, you know, but it just made me so embarrassed. Uh, and then as a teenager, I acted out sexually a lot. Um, you know, I, I saw what the boys wanted and that they would give me attention if I gave it to them. Uh, and I had a, a nice figure um, and they saw me and they went, they'd come oh, up a little. Oh, oh, sorry, got to stop you in mid there. Yeah. Because yeah. I've got the benefit of having met you before, Naomi. Yes. I've had yes. the benefit of seeing photographs of you. Not yes. had a nice figure. Okay? <laughs> women are spending money to cut themselves to look the way you do. Oh, don't so, do so. that, women. <laughs> I don't, I don't do that. Right? Yeah, well, that's... No, looking good. Don't take that away from yourself. Okay, well, thank you. And I think that brings to light another effect of child abuse and uh, CSA is a uh, lack of confidence and not really having a good sense of your body because the body keeps the score. And when that abuse started, my mind and my body separated. And uh, even today when I was doing yoga and they were saying to scan my body, that's still difficult for me to be in my body, to be present. And, and uh, that's one of the effects of abuse as well. And so I, when I went into my teenage years and that promiscuity put me in some very dangerous situations and I didn't have any tools to defend myself. Uh, so I was pretty much had a sign on my forehead, you know, to come get me. <laughs> I'm a victim. <laughs> and I got into to, uh, sex trafficking. Uh, I hitchhiked to Cleveland, Ohio. And when I got there, this horrible man uh, took control of me, and it took me a, about four months to get out of Cleveland and back into uh, foster care in Florida, and I'm lucky to be alive. How old were you? Fourteen. Fourteen years of age? Yes, ma'am. What were you looking for? I, I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but some people might think this is a young person being promiscuous. Were you looking for sex? Were you looking for love? Were you looking for acceptance? What were you looking for? Well, I, I feel like at that time in my life, I, I was almost like a pinball in a pinball machine. And I was just being hit about from place to place. And I think my core motivation was acceptance. The reason we hitchhiked to Cleveland was because my girlfriend told me that her family was going to accept me and love me and I could be a part of their family. And when we got there, they said, who the hell is that? And they uh, put, you know, said, well, she can get a job with the guy's name was Pud. 
of all, it's a horrible name. Excuse me, adults knew what was going to happen to you? Yeah, well, they they put me in this man's custody. And the next thing I know, he was violently raping me and I belonged to him. And I had to do what he told me to, or I was going to be probably killed as far as I knew. And I was in Cleveland. I, I was literally felt like I was helpless, you know, but eventually I got it in my mind. I can pick up the phone and I can call Florida uh, Health and Rehabilitative Services and I can get a hold of someone and I can get a ticket out of here. And that's what I did. Uh, I think your mind, when you are a, a, a victim of abuse, it'll trick you into thinking that you are powerless because even today, after years of therapy, there will be moments when I become so emotionally overwhelmed that I, I just can't think straight. My, my head is just with so many emotions and feelings. And that's where the tools from therapy come in handy. But back then, as a teenager, I was really unequipped to safely travel the world. So that's why I got more abuse. And of course, your hormones already doing their own thing because that is when they tend to become super active without being abused teenagers want to be accepted and recognized the csa is another layer as you've identified you know i found that working in this area that people who turn to other people for help not in every case but they were abused again whether it's in the church as you know, littleroad.org and Survivors Voices are part of Survivors Focus Groups looking at how the Church of England can improve their standard. Yes, Whether I filled out the survey. Thank you for that. Or if it's in the foster home or indeed turning to family for help. Now, I know that man you were talking about wasn't family, but the adult must have known what he was about. He was a terrible man. I mean, and he had a terrible name. <laughs> it was like I, when I was writing my life story and I was writing this part of it, I was like, wow, it's almost like you couldn't even write a script like that to make the villain. What's his name? Pud. <laughs> it's a horrible name. So, Naomi, if you are speaking to a 14 year old today and you've got a wealth of knowledge and experience. How would you advise a 14-year-old who today is being sexually abused? Well, I wouldn't for a moment pretend that I can understand what it's like to be a 14-year-old today. And I have a 16-year-old daughter because things are so different than when I was that age as far as the effect that social media has had on everything and the whole pressure i mean when i was a teenager it was cheryl teagues and uh christy brinkley who still looks great by the way but they were just the ones that you were supposed to look like and there was no way i was gonna look like either one of them you know i look like mogley from the jungle book you know so i mean i didn't identify with that and so then i just didn't think about it but now with social media those images are in their faces every single day and so feeling not enough is a feeling that many teenage girls have without even being abused, you know? So if you're being sexually abused, there's a 
very big temptation to just keep it to yourself because you feel ashamed. So if I'm going to talk to somebody out there that's being sexually violated, and that's what it is, it's a violation, that's wrong. They don't deserve to touch you that way. You don't deserve to be treated that way. And as soon as you can, you need to get to a teacher, a police officer, a firefighter, someone that you can trust and tell them what is happening and they will help you. You are not alone and there are people that can help you out there. Less than five minutes ago, I heard from you, you couldn't trust your father. Your mother had, for want of a better term, had abandoned you. Talking about how a child sees it, not mm -hmm. how they rationalize as an adult. Sure. So you've got a father who's a, a mother who appears to abandon you, a father who was indifferent to your own needs, a friend who tried to help you, but you ended up in a bigger pile of poo in many respects. Trust must be a real issue, even for a 14 year old today. Mm. So when we say trust somebody, Mm. remember it was not so long ago you were saying about one can't even trust themselves once you've been in this abuse situation how do we manage trust for our young people who are in this situation because it's rife it's rife right. in society how do we manage trust for them so that they feel do you know what i can what do we need to do well i'm not gonna lie and tell you that it's not without risk because anything that's worth something and you are most certainly if you're hearing my voice you are worth something and you if it's worth it it's worth risk and there is going to be a risk to speak up i mean i'm not going to lie and tell you there isn't a risk but it's better than being abused i had to find my voice i had to pick up the phone and and that's how i got out of that situation Unfortunately, I didn't know how to keep out of bad situations. And I found myself time and again back in those abusive situations. The only way that can be stopped is if you ask for help of mental health therapy. That's what's needed. Because when your brain is changed by these abusive acts, you're the whole way that you approach the world and the lens that you view it has changed. So you're making decisions based on a victim's point of view and not the survivor that you actually are. You just don't know it yet. I didn't know that I had it in me to be able to overcome my father. I thought I was always going to be uh, subject to his opinions and his, you know, I would do anything for love. And even today, I have that tendency to people please. Because there's the four trauma responses, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And I'm a big fawner. <laughs> a lot of entertainers are. And I, I find myself doing that even today, where you try to please people. And I change what I like and what I don't like, depending on who I'm talking to. That's what I did every day. And then, so when I started treatment at age 50, I didn't even know who I was, <laughs> you know? I had no idea. I know we're speaking with hindsight when we look back at your life and how you've been able to manage your trauma. And I recognize that 
your mom went off to do singing and that's mm. your thing. Mm. So was singing therapeutic or were you trying to connect with your mother? Yeah, well, my mother was persona non grata <laughs> in our household. Uh, it was clear from everything that was said and done that she was a bad person. And, you know, and then it came verbal assaults. Oh, you're going to be fat like your mother. You're going to, oh, you want to look at yourself in the mirror like your mother. Ugh, vain, you know. So it was, and even the, my family was like a sporty family. You know, they played tennis and diving and swimming and all these sports. And I was like, wait for me, (laughs) but I could sing and none of them can sing, but that was my mother's thing. So it wasn't celebrated. And I didn't even start singing until I was 19. Uh, So, and I did it to make money uh, to survive because you could make a lot more money singing. I could make a thousand dollars singing, you know, greatest love of all by Whitney Houston in a talent contest. Or I could spend a month cutting hair and and working really hard. So right away, I realized I could make more money as a singer. So my relationship with music was a little dysfunctional. I'm realizing that now that I'm healing. Uh, I put a price on myself and, uh, you know, I would do whatever they told me to do, whether it made me feel bad about myself or not, you know. How did you cope with relationships? Because the thing that I find consistently with victim survivors is relationships are everyday human relationships. Whether ones at work, speaking with a colleague, indeed speaking within the family or speaking with yourself. Hmm. Relationships are affected. So how was your relationships affected as a result of the abuse? Well... I have, this is my third marriage. I I was married the first time to my first daughter's father. And I just kind of thought, I'm going to get this guy and I'll put some paint on him and I'll make him into the perfect guy. You know, guess what? That doesn't work. <laughs> I found that out. <laughs> and then my second How marriage. How long did it take to find out? Uh, well, we were married for six months and I said, okay. oh, that, that was bad. Oh, Naomi, what'd you do? So then I, I unfortunately fall, fell into the trap of going with the narcissistic guitar player that was in the band. Marriage number two was uh, eight years of uh, replay of my childhood relationship with my father. I didn't learn to drive until I was 30 because this person I was married to convinced me that I was too clumsy. I shouldn't drive. And uh, I believed it. You know, it was easier for me to just kind of give him permission to rule things and for me just to drink and sing and make sure that my oldest daughter got to the bus stop and to school. And that that was all I did for that time period. And when I turned 30, that's when I met my current husband and I, I left the abuse and decided that there had to be more for me out there in the world. And 30 is a big one. You know, I started working out, I got empowered and we got married and uh, I had two more children, but my relationships with my children were difficult because there's these landmines, not only in relationships with men, 
But when you have children and you yourself are abused at age five, at age 10, at age 12, a part of you is kind of stopped emotionally at that point. And so there are times when I look back now, I realize I was just right down in the mud with my kid, the same age as them, not being a parent, but being another child. And so as a result, my relationships today with my daughters uh, have issues and problems that we're having to work on. And it's a very difficult position to be in, in recovery, mentally, uh, but I've been sober, you know, once I worked out the EMDR and the childhood trauma, I didn't want to drink anymore. I didn't want to hurt myself anymore, but it's still difficult having to deal with the damage because the alcoholic isn't the only one sick, the family that lives with them and had to compensate for the behavior. You know, everybody had their role and now I've been sober for a year and a half, but still sometimes people in my home are playing that old role thinking that I am still that same person and I'm not. So everyone has had to adjust to the healthy me, you know, just because you seek treatment, it doesn't make the harp play and the birdies fly. and oh, you know, Things don't become perfect. There's still a little conflict in my life and there's still some sadness and some anger. But now it's manageable because I have support with my therapy and I have sobriety, which makes me think better <laughs> and straight. And I also have, you know, the knowledge that I have complex PTSD. Before, I didn't have that knowledge. I just thought there was something wrong with me. I thought I was broken. But now I know when I'm emotionally reactive, I know why. And just having that knowledge really has helped me because I don't have to be so afraid. What did alcohol do for you? Because you're telling me you were an alcoholic. What did it do for you? Well, at the beginning, it gave me the courage to get on stage. And it was, but it was also part of the confusion of who I am because I drank in excess since I was 19 years old and I'm 54 now, uh, you know, I didn't stop until I was 52. So from 19 to 52, rather than deal with difficult emotional situations, I drank instead. And at the beginning, it helped me to get on stage to be funny. But if I'm honest, it, there were problems from the beginning, you know, blackouts, difficult personal situations, uh, you know, promis promiscuous behavior is amplified with alcohol, you know, you, and you being a victim is also amplified because you can't really get away if you're incapacitated by alcohol. So it, it was something that started out as a tool and ended up being uh, a weapon that I used to sabotage myself. So self-love is something that was clearly lacking. Yes. And I worked. was clearly lacking. Yes, absolutely. When were you able to identify and change that? Well, I think the big, 
that is something I'm still working on as far as my self-esteem is concerned. And I, I went through two years of EMDR and I'm currently looking for a new therapist because I'm becoming aware through my relationship with the remaining daughter here at home. She's 16. And I'm realizing that I have some more issues that are, that are from my father and the situation that I'm about to write about in my blog, but <laughs> it's, it's very difficult is when I was abandoned because my therapist told me being abandoned is something that's really hard to get over. Being cut from the herd is one of the most devastating things that can happen. So they tell me, <laughs> and I do often, you know, feel like still today when I'm down that I'm less than, you know, I, but I have this negative voice in my head and I have been arguing with it. <laughs> That's my new way. In the old days, the negative voice was the queen of my mind. Now I have another voice that comes up, a little snarky, smarty pants voice. That's, you know, the, the, the other voice will say, Naomi, nobody cares about that. You're ridiculous. You know, that would be a typical thought I may have. And so my snarky voice will go, no, that's not true. That's not true. Naomi knows a lot now. She went to therapy. <laughs> she knows stuff. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I say just like, it doesn't even have to mean anything, but it's just a little, a little person is in there with a saying, Hey, no, you can't talk to her that way. That's my friend, Naomi. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a mini advocate. I like Naomi's advocate a lot. I'm not <laughs> sure about poisonous uh, the poisonous palate. I've got a whole speech about a poisonous palate. So I'm not sure about <laughs> that poisonous palate. Needs strangling. But yeah. I'm with Naomi's advocate. So are you in the position, Naomi, where you love yourself? Today? Yes. Oh, I'm going through a rough patch right now, to be honest. Uh, and I haven't even talked to anybody about it. I haven't been to therapy or anything, but I haven't been tempted to drink. But it's just the pandemic and just having to kind of, I don't know if you have come across this with your work with survivors, but I'm the type of person that when something bad happens, I'm almost a person that doesn't react on the surface. Like I, I'm, I look calm, uh, you know, everything's fine. And then maybe five days later, <laughs> it'll hit me. You know, I think that's from being abused. And then I'll go through a couple of weeks of uh, having to get in touch with my emotions and, and figure out why do I feel this way? And I think uh, I've identified the problem now is that these old emotional patterns that we as a family used to have when I was drinking, some of that is still around and it's causing us some uh, issues and we're going to go to family counseling so that we can work through that. So we can all learn together the new normal, you know, because we survived with the dysfunctional normal for a long time, you know, and we didn't know any other way. And I think there are many people out there that could relate to that as far as, you know, it, my family, oh, well, are you abused? No, not me. I, my dad didn't hit me. And, you know, there's all different levels of problems in a family. And communication is number one. And our communication needs a little professional guidance. 
Nothing wrong with that. It's good to hear that you're reaching out. And check out Rooney's poem when you're having those overloaded emotional days. I will send it to you. It's on littleroad.org. It's on one of the blog posts that we've got. How did you get to the point of forgiveness? Mr. Rogers. Mr. (laughs) Rogers, I have a book. His there's a little book someone gave me of Mr. Rogers and there's a quote and I can't remember the lady. It's a lady that he loved. And the quote is something like there isn't anyone that you couldn't love once you hear their story. And I love that quote. And that kind of illustrates my tracing my family tree. I got to know the individual's the stories, the trials, the tribulations, the poverty, the mental illness, the alcoholism. And it it was a, a tale that told me that I'm not broken. It's not my fault. These were humans that didn't possess the capacity to love me as I deserved to be loved. And I think in the four agreements, There is a passage where they talk about that, where we should forgive our trespassers because they were only doing what they knew how to do. And some people get angry when I say that. They say, what do you mean? You can't let them off the hook. They did these terrible things. And I say, yes, they did those terrible things. But in fact, they were doing the best they could with what they had at the time. It was horribly wrong and way short of the mark, but they didn't have the capacity to do anything other than that. And I can't change that. And if I live for another moment, letting them rent space in my head, then I'm giving them the power that they don't deserve. You know who's good also is Dr. Edith Egger. She's an Auschwitz uh, survivor And she was like, walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but don't pitch a tent. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that and I feel it and I understand it. But I always feel this upset. The victim survivor is going to be paying for it, for something they didn't do. The innocence that was smothered when they were a child by somebody who could have, should have known better. And they will pay for it for the rest of their life. That bothers me. And my children. It's abuse. It's not only when that person decides to take the innocence of that child, they're actually uh, affecting their children and their grandchildren. It's, It's a trauma goes down generational lines. Epigenics is real. I'm telling you from my work, studying the family line. Uh, That was my hypothesis. I thought there has to be something in my family tree that will show me why I have these problems. It wasn't enough, the things that were done to me. (laughs) I wanted to know why the people did those things. But I also have to realize that, you know, at some point I have to move on, you know, but I always have to care for myself at a higher level. You know, just like a diabetic has to eat healthy foods, exercise, take insulin. You know, I realize as a 
childhood trauma survivor, as a CSA survivor, I understand I, for the rest of my life, have to go to therapy. For the rest of my life, self-care isn't just something that I should do, but I have to do, you know? So it's just a new way of thinking, a new perspective, I think. It, and it's not something that happens overnight and it's still happening right now. It, I'm a work in progress. 100%. In all of this, you have managed to be this forgiving person. I think you're amazing. <laughs> well, I want to be forgiven. That is I really believe that the way people look at so-called sin uh, is a little bit messed up because if you look at it from a point of view of say a scientist, right? The, the rocket, they, they tried to get that rocket up and it exploded. Did they go, Oh, I'm a bad person. My rocket exploded. I'm the worst human ever. No, they look at the rocket. Why did the rocket explode? Let's look real close at our mistakes and let's, you know, take our emotion out of it and try to really examine where did I go wrong? But did it, you make mistakes? You see, this is. Sure, I did. You, how could yeah. you make mistakes when somebody, look, you had this perfect line. Well, they interrupted the line when you were a child. So how right. could you say that you made mistakes? No, I. I am not responsible for the abuse that happened to me, but as an adult, I damn sure am responsible for myself now. Yes. And I can't allow my emotional reactivity to take over my life and harm others. And when I first went to AA in my 20s, I remember they were talking about uh, making amends to others. And I remember being offended. <laughs> And I was like, what do you mean? I haven't hurt anybody. I'm the one who's been hurt. Victim, victim, victim. <laughs> and then later on, I went back to AA and when I was 50 and I clearly could see I had hurt people. And, I, it, and then I became the one that was hurting people because hurt people hurt people. So I can't, you know, speak for the people that hurt me, except for to say I understand where they came from and forgiving them helps me, you know? I spoke to Jane from Survivor's Voice. I am an ambassador with Survivor's Voices. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about this and I'm very good. I can fire up, no problem. And Jane said to me, and this sits with me, if we don't transfer our trauma, we transmit our trauma. So it's a quote, I can't remember who it's from at the moment, but I think there is a lot of truth in that, that we mm -hmm. have to, whatever our anguishes are in life, we have to transfer it into mm -hmm. something that's more positive. So I understand that aspect of it, but I still get incensed. My frustration is this, for somebody's 10, 15 seconds or minutes of pleasure, you your children and perhaps your grandchildren have to pay because you're quite right. Trauma is transmitted. It's generational. Mm -hmm. It's something that we have to live with. And even though um, the, the quote you were talking to earlier about Mr. Rogers, it's from Mary Lou Kanaki. Yeah, I, yeah, that's it. I hear that. And even if I hear someone's story, it doesn't mean that I can love them. I won't 
hate them, I will dislike the behavior because I don't believe in hate and I don't believe in sin, the divine, because I don't do God. The divine right. never did anything wrong. The divine cannot create bad. Mm -hmm. That's man-made. But I am a cynic in my own head also. So when I hear that quote, my cynical voice says, what about Hitler? <laughs> man-made. Right? If I heard Hitler's story, would I love him too? I mean, there are limits to anyone's forgiveness, right? Like in cancel culture here in America is a big, huge thing with people. If someone in our society commits some kind of a sin uh, or is racist or something like that, then they will cancel all their movies. Like, for example, Woody Allen used adopting to uh, find a wife. <laughs> uh, so some people will say, I'll never watch Woody Allen movies. That's, you know, canceling Woody Allen. So, the, you know, there's a, some people that think that, you know, that's how their activism is going to be. You know, I think that, that maybe the patriarchy is where we should start if we're going to be uh, looking at these things. These are systems that are in place. We, I don't think we should be looking at individuals and trying to cancel them. That seems like, uh, you know, uh, doesn't seem very effective in handling the big systemic problem, you know? Well, that's quite interesting because some of the research that I'm doing at the moment is around the fact that I think societies and you know, listeners, don't jump up and down when I say this. You will. All cultures encourage child sexual abuse, full stop. There's not a culture that I can find that doesn't encourage it. The moment you think it's acceptable for a man to be with, with a child, so somebody that is younger than them, substantially, you have encouraged abuse. It amazes me with Hollywood when a man goes out with a woman who is roughly his own age, it makes the headline. Oh yeah, Kenu Reeves. You, okay, you know the, the story. Woman, yeah. The same age as him and people are like, oh my God, she has and you know, the headline. Oh look, well, who's he supposed to be with? Somebody's 16 year old daughter. Yeah. And they made it like, oh, isn't that nice of him to go with her? Yeah. <laughs> How, How generous. How rude. <laughs> uh, so I think you are right, but I do feel that when we allow individuals, Woody Allen, to, or Roman Polanski, don't oh forget. Uh, yeah, they're uh, all yeah. friends, you know, all those people. So when we look at them, and people can say, well, that's yesteryear. No, it's not, because you've got Weinstein. And you've got people doing it right now as we speak, people who are doing photography. We are allowing it, and we have to say we're taking a stance against people like you because that's how you change the system or the mm -hmm. ones we're buying into the system and accepting right. it right it's but a bit like black still, lives matter i think it's so crazy that he still you know like weinstein got arrested the me too movement seems like it only went so far because now the powers that be are misogynist and racist well, this is the whole thing. If you think about the allegations against the president of the United States with a 13-year-old girl, what happened? Don't get me started. Let's get back to, to the abuse. So what changed at 50? Hmm. Okay, well, uh, my first blog goes into, you know, when I finally decided to stop drinking. But I think what happened when I turned 50, just like 30, it was a real big birthday where... 
you kind of look back at your life and kind of see where you are and where your trajectory is going to end up besides dead, you know? And, (laughs) (laughs) and I kind of looked at everything and was like, wow, you're really a mess. Like I had my second DUI driving under the influence. The second time I struck a car. Thank you. Cause some listeners won't know. So thank you for that. Right. So the first time uh, was about 20 years ago. I paid my fines for driving under the influence of alcohol. And then I went back to the behavior after I finished the counseling. And then I hit this car in the middle of the night. Luckily, no one got hurt. They didn't even know I hit them. They drove a mile and then pulled over. But I was out of it. I was drunk. And I got the worst that you could get because it was my second offense. I had a breathing device in my car for two years where I had to breathe into it to start my car. That really went over well with my teenage daughter. (laughs) It was a terrible time for having a teenager. And she was so embarrassed by my behavior. And I was embarrassed by my behavior. And I think it was just a whole, you know, everything came to a head where I, I just didn't want to live that way anymore. And one day I was sitting in the living room with my husband watching Oprah Winfrey talking about the ACE test, which is 10 questions, adverse childhood experiences. Uh, It's a test they put together to find out if maybe something from your childhood is the cause of your troubles today. My husband and I took the test right then and there. I got a nine and he got a one. (laughs) So that was the first inkling that we got that perhaps my brain is different than his. And that's the reason why my responses to the world were so wildly different. I was like a twig on a, a, a stream, you know, just bouncing around every emotional thing that happened would just knock me off course. (laughs) The second marriage was abusive. And that was a thing that, uh, you know, I, I, for years had trouble putting two and two together. Why did I do that? Why, Why did I do that? But then after therapy, I realized it was the narcissist that I was attracted to because I recognized that pattern from my childhood. I really had very little pleasure in my sexual and close relationships with men. It was always uh, a detached affair. We're coming near the end. Has therapy made a big difference? Well, yes. I I remember when I hadn't yet sought treatment, you know, and just that feeling of of, uh, feeling like you're a piece of crap and that you don't belong in the world and just like you don't know where to turn. And then just getting that diagnosis that's just the first step you know story about the lion with the 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 thorn in its paw yes and it was sir and then they took the thorn out and all of a sudden hey i'm a nice lion right uh which is just a fable but that really was the emdr therapy is a miracle for people with complex ptsd and how it is able to give you a new perspective on your pain uh it I was drowning in my pain before, and now I observe the things that I worked on. I observe them like they happened to someone else. And that's the power of EMDR therapy. Actually, I would like to come to the day when I don't have to talk about it anymore, you know. And before we get into the quick fire round, 
What would you say on self-help? I feel like anybody out there that's looking for some help, whether it be for mental health or if you just want to talk to somebody to find out if what you're experiencing is something that you could seek help for, reach out for people like Aaron and me and Roz. That was a wonderful uh, PSA that you did for the telethon. We're out there. We want to talk to people. We want you to reach out because I think there's a special magic. The reason I go out and campaign is I want everybody sitting in that room to know this is happening. I want every single person to know they can actually stop it. We, as a society, need to change the profile. And I think you hit on it earlier when you said patriarchy. But I must say that women also sexually abuse their boys as mothers and young men as women who are older. So. It is mainly patriarchy, and sometimes I think women think equality right. behaving like a man. It's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, and, and that, that, that happens a lot. You, you see it in the media, but the attitudes that society have, are it's a double standard. They're like, oh, that teacher's hot. That young man is so lucky. I wish I was him when I had my first time. It's like, no, that's called abuse come on it's just education is what's going to get people to understand the pain can i go into the quick fire round with you okay quick fire round pew pew quick fire round are you good to go um yes i'm warmed up what's the best thing about being a woman uh, when you get pulled over and you say, oh, I didn't know I was speeding. <laughs> <laughs> What's the hardest thing about being a woman? Uh, the hardest thing about being a woman is not being taken seriously. So that's a double-edged sword, isn't it? <laughs> What's the most unexpected thing you found about being a woman? That I have power within me that is greater than I know. It's your 90th birthday. And you have a choice of having three people in the room to celebrate that birthday with you. Who would they be? My husband and, well, I have three daughters. This is not fair. <laughs> that leaves one of the daughters out. Oh my we'll, God. We'll sneak another person in. Okay. My husband and my three daughters. <laughs> Can a white person write a black character? No, I don't think so. No. Are men just a little above women? No, I don't think so. I think that we each have our qualities that can complement one another. Where would a man meet a woman like you? They're not, I'm not available anymore to meet any more men. But if <laughs> but you were? If I were, they would meet me online and read me in my words at tracingtrauma.com. Name two social justice causes that are close to your heart. Well, Black Lives Matter... I, I believe there has to be changes, especially in American society, to to take seriously the, that cause. There, there's controversy now because of misinformation, but that's something I believe in highly. And also just CSA and the prevention of that, that is my number one, definitely. What does love feel like? For me, love feels like safety, like a big, warm, safe hug 
you hear the pitter-patter of raindrops on the window and maybe a little thunder, but you know you're in the safe arms of the one that cares for you. That's love. Oh, I love that. I want to stop there. I might have to swap the order of the questions around and put that last. I love that. Can you have two romantic Eros-type relationship loves at the same time? No, not me, because I'm a Taurus woman. And when I love, I possess and love one at a time. <laughs> What's the thing that takes your breath away? Beautiful tune or uh, a sunset, animals in nature. When were you happiest and why that time frame? Oh boy, happiest. Oh, that's a, I don't know. I wouldn't say that I've reached that time frame yet. And I still have my happiest days to come. Have you ever stolen a sweet from the shop? Candy. Have you ever stolen candy from the shop? Yes. I, 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 uh, I remember I stole the Juicy Jewel ring when I was in elementary school and I had it hidden behind a book and the lady said, what's behind your book? And I said, nothing. And then I had to reveal the stolen candy. And she said, what's your parents' phone number? And she took that, I gave her a fake phone number, but then every day when I had to walk to school past that store, I would hide my face with my hair as I walked by. And shame, shame. If you were president, for one day, what would you do? If I were president just for one day, I'm hoping it's a good day. <laughs> <laughs> Some days as the president seem real bad. Um, <clears throat> if it was only for one day, uh, I don't know that I could really do much in terms of policy. I'd try to do something to change the hearts of people. Because I, I really feel like kindness and empathy has taken a, a really bad hit as of late. So I'd really be a proponent of that. What is your favorite road trip song? Because I'm going to say goodbye to you now. And thank you for being on the show. But I want you to sing us out. Naomi, thank you so much for being my guest here today. It's been an absolute pleasure. You thank have you. left us all the better and enlightened. Thank you for sharing your story. But you cannot go without two things. A, promising to come back because there will be more to tell. And B, sing us out with your favorite song. Over to you, Naomi. Of course I will come back. I love talking to you. Roz, you rock. <laughs> Life is a highway. I will ride it all night long. If you're going my way, I will ride it all night long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Roz. It's a wrap. Remember, you can catch all my broadcasts and never miss a show. I'm on all the major podcast platforms. Just press the follow button above or below. Be gentle with yourself. This is Insight with Roz, a radio broadcast brought to you on podcast by I'mJustSaying.com, independent of the good opinion of others.